We are continuing in a worship uh, sermon series called Greater Than, as Didi talked about earlier in the service. This is a series of messages where we are talking about why a life with God is greater than a life without God, essentially talking about discipleship, which is a big fancy Christian church word that means walking with Jesus. And about once a year, we'll come around, we'll do a series that's kind of around this theme of discipleship because it's important to constantly be asking ourselves those questions that pull us deeper and closer into a relationship with Christ because it can be really easy to be comfortable with our walk with Christ. And, and so we like to ask these hard questions about how our, our faith and our discipleship and our walk could be greater than it was before. Uh, this is the fifth week. Next week, um, we are going to end the series with a guest speaker in here. Uh, you guys are in for a treat. Uh, we'll We'll have a speaker named Kenan Callahan, and um, I don't know if anyone in this room remembers Dr. Callahan, but he used to actually be an associate pastor on this staff many moons ago, uh, back in the Tom Schiff years. And in many ways, uh, he sort of cut his teeth and, and developed a, a sense of ministry here at Lovers Lane that propelled him into a lifelong career of being a church consultant, and a very good one at that. He's written a lot of books, uh, but so many times in his consulting work and in his writing, he goes back and he remembers stories about Lovers Lane, about the work that... Uh, he was able to do here with Tom Ship and the people of Lover's Lane back in those early years. And, uh, and so he'll be here next week to close out our sermon series and also as our ship lecture series speaker on that Monday and Tuesday and on a Sunday night as well. So I encourage you to come back next week and to come on Sunday evening. I think the foundation has tables set up outside. You can buy tickets there. It's going to be great. Uh, today, uh, we're going to talk about... Uh, storms and about seas and about risk and about safety. And I want to open with a quote uh, from 1928 uh, by a professor named John A. Shedd. He was an American professor. He published a collection of uh, sayings, about 60 pages long of these different sayings that he called Salt from My Attic. That's a nice little kind of humorous tongue-in-cheek uh, title from the 20s, I guess. Amongst the aphorisms that he wrote in there, there is one that has really sort of stood out and, and has been quoted and, and quoted and quoted again um, from that book. And, and he says this, A ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. A ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. Safety. Safety. Safety is a topic that is on the forefront of a lot of our minds uh, these days, I imagine. If you're like me, we've got home monitoring systems. We've got uh, debates around safety. We've even got doorbells that have cameras hidden inside them so you can see if someone's taking your Amazon package, right? That's like the local news loves those, by the way. That's like their favorite thing. Um, Marketing gurus, political pundits, they know that our minds are on safety right now. And so we talk about safety a lot. And there's a lot of fear around safety. A ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships were built for or what they were meant for. And when, John, uh, when John Shedd wrote those words 90 years ago, exactly 90 years ago, he was between two world wars, a couple years away from the Great Depression, and in the final year of his own life here on earth. And so he had a reason to care about safety as well. And I think that the words of John A. Shedd are important for us. They sort of set the tone for us today as we begin a conversation around why risk is greater than safety. Because there's a difficult truth that we're going to have to confront today as a worship service here in Thrive. Um, and that is this, that a life of faith is not going to always call us to safe places. In fact, a life of faith is frequently going to be calling us into positions that we feel like are risky. 
Like an admiral calls a ship, our life of faith is going to call us not to the harbor but to the sea. And so we begin with a really big question this morning as we start our sermon. How can a life of risk be greater than a life of safety? Because it doesn't sound like on the surface that makes sense. It seems like in life we should be seeking safety as much as possible. And today, in order to understand this question and to find some answers to it, uh, we're going to look at two different sets of scriptures, one from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, This is a story that is very iconic, and even if you've never read it in your life, I'm willing to bet that you've seen a movie referencing it or something. It's sort of pop culture. It's when Jesus uh, leads Peter to walk on water. It's a story that is kind of visually iconic, um, but it's, it's going to introduce us to this conversation today. And, and what's important to know about understanding this scripture, because you'll see it referencing the sort of surrounding events, right before this scripture, Jesus is feeding the 5,000. So he's performing a miracle and feeding the 5,000 people. And then this story happens. And then right after, Jesus is going to go and heal some people from their sickness. He's going to go cure some people. So this story comes in the midst of miracles. And this is another example of Jesus' miraculous power on display. And so we're going to start with this one, and then later in the sermon, we're going to look at the book of Acts. But let's just put a pin in that for now. Let's start with Peter on the water. Let's pray together before we approach our scripture this morning. God, we thank you for gathering us here at this place this morning. We ask that you would meet us however we arrive. If we just had the best week of our lives, God, we know that you celebrate with us. And if we just had the worst week of our lives, God, we know that you are sitting next to us, the shoulder to cry on, the friend to lean on. And God, if we just got through with a meh week, then maybe you're just sort of there and saying meh too. But we come now to this moment to to be reminded that whether we are celebrating or mourning or something in between, that your word is instrumental in our lives that your stories leap off the pages and into our hearts, that they can change the way that we live if we let them. God, bless this moment. Have your Holy Spirit move. Make the text come alive. Amen. It says this, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 14 of the Gospel of Matthew. Right then, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowds. These are all the people that just ate the food that he multiplied. When he sent them away, he went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. Evening came, and he was alone. Now I like to add, and probably very happy. <laughs> Finally, some, some solitude. Meanwhile, the boat, fighting, the boat, fighting a strong headwind, was being battered by the waves and was already far away from land. Very early in the morning, he came to his disciples walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. They were so frightened, they screamed, ah! I like to make the scripture come alive (laughs) and wake you up. Then Jesus, just then Jesus spoke to them, be encouraged, do not be afraid, it's me. Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. And then making Peter regret, he just said that. Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and was walking on the water toward Jesus. But when Peter saw the strong wind, he became frightened. As he began to sink, he shouted, Lord, rescue me! Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him, saying, you man of weak faith, why did you begin to have doubts? When they got into the boat, the wind settled down. Then those in the boat worshiped Jesus and said, you must be God's son. 
I think there's a temptation in the Christian faith when we read scriptures like this or, or when we read scriptures about uh, Jesus' miracles and things going well for people when, when sickness is cured and, and people are fed and 5,000 people are able to get food. You know, it can be easier for us to fall into this sort of this ditch of belief that, that, that leads us to believe something along these lines that God will never let bad things happen to me. Or, or on a similar note, if I just have faith, then everything in my life will go smoothly. Have you ever wanted to believe that? Have you ever heard somebody preach that? These are easy beliefs to fall into. They sound really nice. They, they look pithy, and you can put them on your wall, you can buy them at Bed Bath & Beyond. And yet, if any of us have actually lived a human life experience, I am talking to humans out here, right? If you've lived a human life experience, you know that that kind of syrupy spiritualism doesn't really hold water, yeah? But then again, this scripture, the one we just read and others like it, these scriptures where Jesus is calming storms and stilling seas, um, you know, they, they get deployed throughout the years as a clear example of God's power over storms, both literal and figurative. And, and I've even heard um, that preachers say that, that whether or not the storm, literal or figurative, finds us in this life is dependent on whether or not we have faith, that our faith commands those things. I remember when Hurricane Katrina... Quite a literal storm pummeled the Gulf Coast. A lot of my family lives down the Gulf Coast in southern Mississippi. I remember Christian pastors, Christian pastors getting on TV and saying that Katrina came and ravaged the whole Gulf Coast, but I guess specifically New Orleans because of New Orleans' sin. They pointed to stories like the image of Peter drowning in the sea, and they would say that that was clear evidence that doubt and sin are the cause of God's punishment in our lives. And if we only have faith and turn back to God, then the storm would just go away. And that kind of preaching and that kind of belief and that kind of view angers me, not even just on a personal level because I think it's callous and uncaring and unkind to people who are going through real human suffering, but, but also because it's just a bad reading of Scripture it's just like, do you want to read it again? Because if we read the Bible and we look at these stormy stories, if we look at stories of storms, then we see that God's not in the storm, God's in the stilling. And God's not in the lightning or the thunder, God is in the calm. And God is not in the drowning in Peter's story, God is quite literally the immediate helping hand. The helping hand of Christ immediately comes down and says, let me help you up. Because the reality is, and I, you know, God knows this about us, God knows us better than we could ever know ourselves, the reality is that even when our faith is at its best, we will not be without doubt. I'm a pastor, I, I love God a lot, right, or else I'm in the wrong line of work. I love God a lot, I've, I, I like to think that I've got a decent amount of faith, and yet every day there are doubts inside of me. Even when our faith is at, the, at its best, there are doubts inside of us. And so when we follow our faith into a risky situation, we may at times succeed. Peter walks on water for a while, but there will be times that we will fail and we will feel like we are drowning. And Peter's story reminds us that faith and doubt are both part of the Christian walk. And Peter was in the presence of Christ himself walking on water. Can you imagine holding Jesus' hand and walking on water and still having doubts. 
Peter reminds us that it's a reality. But even in drowning in the water, the gospel has good news for us this morning, church. And the good news is this, that the life of faith does not guarantee we will always walk on water. But when we are drowning, there will be a helping hand. I need that good news many Sundays and many days in between. That My life of faith does not mean that I'm always going to walk on water. But when I am drowning, there will be a helping hand. I think it's important to acknowledge that when we adopt a risky faith, sometimes we may feel like we're walking on water and sometimes we may feel like we're getting drenched and submerged and drowning, but God's presence is with us always, which led me this week to consider another story of ships and seas and risk and safety, and this time coming from the book of Acts, chapter 27, beginning in also verse 27. That was nice. Um, And this story is about Paul. Paul was the early church leader. Uh, he was the one that was converted. He was a, he was a Jewish uh, leader that uh, persecuted Christians, had an experience with Christ, converted to, not really converted, but felt called to Christianity as a Jew. And he began to lead and grow all these churches in the Mediterranean, but the Roman authorities did not like Paul um, because Paul was, you know, a zealot. We'll put it that way. He had a lot of zeal. I, I could imagine Paul getting into some yelling matches with people, um, including Roman guards. What are you going to do? Lock me up. And they did. Um, and so he was prisoner, uh, being shipped by a ship. That's what shipped means. Um, he was being sent by ship, uh, and, and the ship that he's on with other prisoners gets beset by a storm, and that's where we're going to pick up in Acts 27, um, verse 27. It says, on the 14th night, we were being carried across the Adriatic Sea. Around midnight, the sailors began to suspect that land was near. They dropped a weighted line to take soundings and found the water to be about 120 feet deep. After only a little further, we took soundings again and found the water to be 90 feet deep. So the ground is doing this, right, which is bad if you're in a ship. Afraid that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they hurled out four anchors from the stern and began to pray for daylight. The sailors tried to abandon the ship by lowering the lifeboat into the sea, pretending they were going to lower anchors from the boat. Paul said to the centurion and his soldiers, unless they stay in the ship, you cannot be saved from peril. The soldiers then cut the ropes to the lifeboat and let it drift away. People tend to avoid risk. That's not a sort of aha moment for anyone in the room, right? That's a pretty common sense idea, not very provocative. People tend to avoid risk. A lot of our systems in life are sort of built upon this concept. We see this play out time and time again, both in Scripture and in life. Uh, Jesus tells a parable about a man who's given a coin to invest, but instead he hides it in the earth. Why? Because he's afraid that he might lose it. People tend to avoid risk. In my own life, how many times have I chosen the path that I thought was the least risky because it just seemed too scary and had too much risk? And that is why this part of Paul's story is kind of surprising, if not even stunning to me. Because you got these Roman soldiers who are confronted with a storm, and their, their lives are being threatened, and their ship might wreck on a rock at any given moment, and they take their lifeboats, and they start to lower them into the water for safety, and they cut the rope, and they send the lifeboat away. Well, that's just stupid, right? That's ridiculous. Who in their right mind would listen to some random prisoner saying, no, 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 you got to stay in the big boat if you want to survive. It's like called a lifeboat for a reason. Like it is designed to save you in this exact scenario. He's like, you don't want to get in that. No. Like, oh, okay. They just cut it. 
That's ridiculous. Or is it? I spent some time this week with the scripture, and, and I, I kind of was wrestling. I was like, what, what is this supposed to tell me? These soldiers, like, is it just telling me that these soldiers are foolish? What is it? And I, I think this part of the story is included in the book of Acts. I think that the author spends time explaining these soldiers cutting away their lifeboats to remind us, reading this even 2,000 years later, to remind anybody who has set their eyes on this text that a life of faith does not come with life preservers. A life of faith does not come with life preservers. In his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul wrote a lot of letters there in the New Testament. He wrote a letter to the church in Philippi, and he said that to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's a very famous thing that he said. And what he meant by that is that the life of faith carries with it a cost. There is a big cost, and that cost is nothing less than our life itself. That if we want to follow after the footsteps of Jesus, if we want to pick up the cross and follow him, then we have to be willing to lay all of who we are on the altar and say, God, do with it what you will. We have to be willing to spiritually die so that a new life can begin within us. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But when we find ourselves at sea in the midst of a storm, staring a risky decision in the face, like do we get in the lifeboat or not, the lifeboats and the life preservers can begin to seem really enticing. Amen? Have you ever had a hard time cutting those ropes? I have. What keeps us from cutting the rope? I can think of three things off the top of my head uh, as I was thinking about this this week. Number one is comfort. Because let's be honest, the life that we've always known fits us like a glove, right? And who really wants to change? Reagan talked about that last week some. I encourage you to go back and hear that message. Number two is excuses for me. Let me tell you, I've learned this in 30 years. If you want to find a reason not to do what God is asking you to do, you will always find it. You always will. If you want to find an excuse, you will always find it. Number three is pessimism, and this one might be my favorite because, hey, if I assume it's going to fail, then why even try, right? Doesn't that feel good? It always feels good. Ah, why even try? Maybe you have your own reasons. I'm curious what your reasons are for holding on to the life preserver, but these were mine. We all have our reasons for wanting to run from risk and to ride in our own lifeboats to keep our own selves safe, to preserve our own lives, and yet we know that that's not the life that God's calling us to. And also, it's not the end of Paul's story. There's more to be said about this ship experience, and we'll understand why the big boat was so important in the first place if we keep reading. Beginning in verse 39 of chapter 27, it says this, in the morning light, they saw a bay with a sandy beach. They didn't know what land it was. It would actually end up being Malta. We find that out in the next chapter, but we don't know that yet. But they thought they might possibly be able to run the ship aground. So we're going to try and land the ship. They cut the anchors loose and left them in the sea. That's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. At the same time, they untied the ropes that ran back the rudders. They raised the foresail to catch the wind and made for the beach, but they struck a sandbar. And the ship ran aground. The bow wasn't stuck, or the bow was stuck and wouldn't move, and the stern was broken into pieces by the force of the waves. The soldiers decided to kill the prisoners, to keep them from swimming to shore and escaping. However, the centurion wanted to save Paul. So he stopped them from carrying out the plan. He ordered those who would swim, who could swim, to jump overboard first and head for land. He ordered the rest to grab hold of planks or debris from the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Again, it's the Roman soldiers 
who are being asked to act in faith. And again, their actions are revealing for us this morning as we consider a life of risk being greater than a life of safety. And I see three ways that their actions reveal why a risky faith is better than a life of safety and what it takes to have a risky faith. Number one, a risky faith knows when to cut the anchors. A risky faith knows when to cut the anchors. There's a lot of seasons in life when it can feel like God is being silent or even distant. Have you ever had those seasons in your life? Maybe you're in that season right now. Amen? But if you have faith in God, if you've had faith in God for any length of time, and if you feel like that faith has been made real in your life, then I'm willing to bet there's been at least one time, at least one time, when you felt something inside you stirring so clearly, so vividly, that you could swear it was God's voice itself. Yeah? Do you know what I'm talking about? Is it just me? I think I'm crazy. I think this experience of, of, of sort of feeling that confirmation, that clear, crystal clear stirring or voice, however you want to put language on that, I think that experience is similar to these Roman soldiers knowing that it was time to cut the anchors because cutting the anchors is a decisive act, right? Like there's no turning back from that. You don't cut them and like, wait, I want those back. You know, no, they're gone. Like they're in the sea now. You're done. You're done with anchors. Anchors are yesterday. Today is today. Move forward, right? You don't get anchors anymore. That's a decisive decision. There's no other choices. There's no turning back. And they are going to move straight towards whatever they've just launched themselves at. That can be a little bit frightening as well. But I think about those cut the anchor moments in my life when I felt like I heard so clearly what God's vision was for me. And it's not been a million times. It's been like a handful of times. People ask me, you know, oh, do you hear God talking to you all the time? No, absolutely not. My, you know, God talks to me less than my grandmother does. She calls me like every two weeks. God, like, God speaks clearly about once every five years. <laughs> you know, check in once in a while, God. Um, those cut the anchor moments for me where I just feel like it's crystal clear. Like, when I was a teenager and I felt like God was calling me into some kind of ministry. Like, something just washed over me. And I just, I just knew in that moment, like, that's what I feel like I'm made for. In my early 20s, when I, when I realized that um, my stock had peaked and I needed to lock Reagan down before she realized what a weirdo I was. I needed to get her to marry me. That was a cut the anchor moment. You better do this fast, brother, because she's going to realize you're nuts, right? Seven years later, she's figured it out. And when Reagan and I decided it was time to bring Andy into the world, you know, that's a cut the anchor moment. Let me tell you, you know, there's no turning back when you, when you hold that child for the first time. You're going, what have I done? Parents, you know what I'm talking about. You were Googling where the nearest firehouse was. It's okay. We've all been there. There's dark times. What are your cut-the-anchor moments, right? Like, it, sometimes the life of faith, a risky life of faith is going to ask us to cut the anchors, to get rid of anything that could hold us back and just beeline for the vision that we feel like God has set for us. Now, it's not always going to go perfectly, right? Do they make it to that nice beachy, you know, shoreline? No, they get stuck on a sandbar. And that's why I know that the second thing is true. A risky faith challenges fear. So they're beelining for the shore, and then they get stuck on a sandbar. That's not good, especially when you're transporting a whole bunch of prisoners, enemies of the Roman Empire, right? And these Roman soldiers had a fear that they had to confront. They decide to let the prisoners free, but at what cost? I mean, here's the fears they could have had. Number one, the prisoners could escape, which it says in the Scripture, they were going to kill them to keep them from escaping. If you're a soldier tasked with shipping prisoners, you better not show up to your destination without prisoners, right? That's a bad thing to do. Number two, they could mutiny 
I mean, they're prisoners. We don't know what these guys are guilty of. They could be murderers. They could be thieves. They could be terrible people that could overwhelm the soldiers there and, and take over. Number three, even if they did make it back, if they make it back and, they, and their superior officers see a bunch of sh- prisoners not wearing shackles, what's going to happen to them? You know, the Roman Empire was not known for its mercy and grace, right? Like, they were probably going to get executed for treason. They have to confront these fears. I think it's important to remember. I think sometimes we go into a life of faith and we expect that miraculously, magically, it will somehow be devoid of fear, right? Well, perfect love casts out fear, says the Bambi Christian, right? Well, this is just, I'll, I'll be with God, so I'll never be afraid of anything ever again. Well, let me know when you find that la-la land. I'd love to go there too. I think the reality is that even though, yes, perfect love casts out fear, yes, God's love is more powerful than our human fears, we carry those fears with us every single day. And I bet you those Roman soldiers were just as afraid after they made their choice to free the prisoners as they were before, but they still did it. And what does that tell me? It reminds me of, a, of another quote, this one by a, an old beatnik and talent manager named James Neal Hollingworth, and he wrote this under a pseudonym of Ambrose Redmoon, and he said this, you've probably heard this or something like, that courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than one's fear. I'm going to say that again. Courage is not the absence of fear, but it's the judgment that something else is more important than one's fear fear. Those soldiers in that moment had to make a choice. Was their fear of being overrun, of being executed, of being imprisoned themselves, was that greater than the lives of these prisoners and the life of Paul? And they made a choice. They judged that Paul's life and Paul's faith were more important than their fear. And then by adopting Paul's risk-welcoming faith, they were able to see the prisoners as worthy of salvation as well. And we, don't, we need to not overlook this. This is one of those things in Scripture that it can be easy to read past and go, wow, a ragtag group of guys all come together to save each other. Isn't that great? Like, no, this is a serious decision that they are making. They have a lot of fear they have to overcome. They were Roman soldiers. They were trained. They were trained to despise anyone who was an enemy of the Roman Empire. And certainly, these prisoners would have fit that label, Yes. They were trained. It was probably beaten into them to hate anyone who is an enemy of the Roman Empire, and yet they saw them as worthy of salvation. Scripture tells us that everyone lived that day, and that brings me to the final truth that these soldiers' actions revealed to me, and it's this, that a risky faith can change the world. A risky faith can change the world. Every life was spared. Enemies turned into necessary friends who needed one another to survive. The soldiers took the risk of seeing the prisoners not as a threat, not as an enemy, but as a child of God worthy of salvation, a person worthy of saving. Now I want to say, I'm probably like you, and I've gotten really tired of the level of divisiveness in our culture these days. It's, it, it's just absolutely beating me down. And we've seen that divisiveness on display in Washington and elsewhere in the last several weeks. Now, I consider it a gift to be a pastor in ministry with the people you of Lover's Lane. 
I consider a gift to be a part of this church because we are certainly not of one mind on every single issue. Somebody say amen. I've got the emails to prove it. I think I've ticked off just about everybody in this church at some point. It feels good. It feels good. We're not a red church, and we're not a blue church. I like to say that we're a purple church. Yes, Didi. Didi, Didi made that quite literal. She arrived a couple years ago. I wasn't ready for that. You got me there. But I say purple's good enough for Easter. It's good enough for me, right? I like being a purple church. Do you like being a purple church? Somebody say Amen. Now, in the last couple of years, it seems like there is a level of suspicion and vitriol with which we are seeing each other in our different varying camps on different various issues and different various arenas. And it's not unlike the kind of suspicion or the loathing with which a Roman soldier could view a lowly prisoner. Yeah. I think a lot of us are guilty of this. I know I am. Now, I know one thing is for sure. If we are going to look for someone outside of ourselves, I don't care if it's a leader, a politician, if anybody, if we are going to look for someone other than us to make this better, we are going to drown at sea. Can I say that again? As long as we are looking for somebody else, somebody outside of us, I don't care if it's your neighbor, your favorite politician, your favorite leader, your favorite business, I don't care who it is. If we're looking for somebody other than us, each individual one of us to make this better, we are going to drown at sea. Now, maybe you already feel like we're drowning, or certainly I feel like we might be taking on water. But this week, these scriptures have been precious to me because they remind me of two things. Number one, in the story of Peter, Jesus is offering his hand to us in the same way if we are willing to take it. And in the story of Paul, the story of Paul, Jesus is asking us to be a part of the solution, not just for our side, but for everybody. Everybody in the big boat is in the big boat together. Now, you might not like this, but I'm here to tell you we're all in one big boat together. The Facebook friend that you had to block for 30 days is in the big boat with you. That crazy uncle that you pray to God doesn't show up to Thanksgiving this year because you know he's going to make the dinner awkward is in the big boat with you. And there might be people that you wish you could throw overboard, amen? We're about to have communion. we got to confess, gang. we got to. But that is not a part of the plan. Our scripture reminds us that throwing people overboard is not an option because just like the soldiers were inspired to see prisoners as worth saving, we have to have the faith to see each other not as enemies, not as opposition, but as children worthy of God's love. Now, that sound might sound syrupy sweet, but it's not. This is tough and it's risky. We risk our pride and our self-righteousness. Those feel good, don't they? We risk our pride and our self-righteousness so that we might be able to empathize with someone whom we deeply disagree. We risk our biases and our blind convictions so that we might hear the fears and frustrations and hopes of people who think, speak, or act differently than we do. And most of all, we risk our anger and our hatred 
so that God's grace might be revealed to us in unexpected places like maybe a holy conversation where divisions can be challenged in love. It's a risky place. That kind of a risky faith, let me tell you, church, that kind of a risky faith, that kind of a faith that refuses to see each other the way that our culture and world want us to see each other, that kind of a faith that is more committed to loving God and our neighbor than it is to loving any ideology, that kind of faith that would place our lives on the line for the sake of another person, even someone that we deem unworthy, that kind of a faith is ridiculous, is reckless is risky. It'll get you drenched, not in seawater, but in the boundless grace of God. Because church, we might not always walk on water like Peter, but I pray today we could dive in like Paul. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks today for a faith that never leaves us where we are. We give you thanks today for a faith that unsettles us, that challenges us, that convicts us, that reminds us that while storms are real and while our boat might get battered, by your grace, we could walk on water And lead others to do so too. And God, when we drown, your hand is there. Not in time, but immediately. To comfort us. And to remind us that you are always with us. And God, remind us that this is one big boat we find ourselves in. There are no life preservers in this life. And no one is going overboard. That you have called us to free each other from the shackles of sin, to free each other from the chains of hatred, to free each other from the cells of division that keep us keep us from one another, from relationship, from conversation, from shared mission, from shared love. God, call us all this week to a faith that's a little more risky, a faith that is not satisfied with safety and refuses the lifeboat for the sake of the prisoner. All of this we pray in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.